Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Katherine Van Zippel, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Don't assume anything. Sarah Sargent says this term at one point in our conversation, but I wanted to highlight it by using it as today's title. I speak with Sarah, a bright activist and scholar, who also happens to be a child of wealth, five generations of it. Sarah speaks candidly about how she manages her inherited wealth and how she gives it away. Sarah talks us through her relationship to her money, how it has accumulated, and her plans for the future. But Sarah is not just a donor, she's also a fundraiser. Sarah Sargent is the Resource Mobilization Director at United for a Fair Economy. United for a Fair Economy challenges the concentration of wealth and power that corrupts democracy, deepens the racial divide, and tears communities apart. UFE uses popular economics education, trainings, and creative communications to support social movements working for a resilient, sustainable, and equitable economy. Sarah joined the UFE team as the Development and Operations Associate in February 2019 and transitioned to Resource Mobilization Director in November of 2019. She leads UFE's fundraising and donor engagement work. Sarah grew up in New England and studied education and art history at Smith College. Since a young age, she has been interested in community service and activism, including attending protests against the Iraq War with her family. Since graduating from college, she has worked in the fields of museum education, English as a second language teaching, and volunteer management. Six years ago, Sarah became involved in Resource Generation, which organizes young adults with class and wealth privilege for the equitable redistribution of land, wealth, and power. Some of her hobbies include cooking, birdwatching, and biking. Now let's get started. Sarah, welcome to the debrief. Thank you so much, Catherine. This episode is very unique because we're going to talk to you about your experiences as a donor, but then we're also going to talk about your experiences as a fundraiser. So let's get started with your personal story and a bit of your donor experience. How does that sound? That sounds great. We're going to get a little bit personal with Sarah, and she's been really generous to share some of her family history with us. And so let's start with my first question, which is about your family. You come from a family with five generations of wealth. And with that, I'm sure comes a lot of stories and history and experience. But what are your thoughts on that story and that experience? And and what do you share with people today when they ask you about that? My family history is very much uh, based in the context of American history. Two of my great, great grandfathers uh, immigrated to the U.S. in the late 19th century to the Northeast uh, United States from Scotland, and they were able to easily assimilate into American society as white men. And I think their stories are very much shaped by the context, the historical context, the social context, the economic context of that time, the Industrial Revolution uh, that was happening, um, the open immigration policies, they were able to get citizenship quite quickly, the you know rapidly developing cities uh, of the time. And so they were able to start their own businesses in l- Northeast cities, and they were able to purchase property and become, you know, very successful, very wealthy for the time. 
through purchasing stocks and, and property values and setting up trusts and things like that, they've, you know, that wealth has then been passed down through five generations uh, in my family to this day. For me, I, you know, I respect the decisions and, you know, the, the choices of my ancestors, but at the same time, I think that they benefited from these systemic policies, economic policies that benefit, you know, a certain number of people, often white men, to be able to accumulate wealth, to be able to own businesses, et cetera, and often exclude people of color, women, other marginalized people in society from building wealth over time. And so I see my family's history in sort of this larger context of the racial wealth divide, of economic inequality in the United States. And I just, you know, happened to be born into the family that I was born into. Uh, and my grandmother set up a trust fund for me when I was born to pay for college uh, and other, you know, needs. And so I have, you know, I feel a responsibility to redistribute those resources to communities where that have been historically exploited by this economic system. I wish I could go back in time and sort of talk with my ancestors and ask them, you know, why did you make the decisions that you did and hear their stories? And I'm really interested in Scotland. I actually was planning to go to Scotland with my family uh, to visit the villages where my great great grandfathers were born. But the pandemic hit. <laughs> so that that trip is on pause. But I would, you know, I really want to connect with my heritage and, and learn more about the history of Scotland. So I would like to go back in time. I can't do that. But um, I like to think that, you know, my ancestors wanted to provide financial security for the, you know, future family members. You know, they were philanthropists in their own way. And I think for me, the value that I'm carrying forward is sort of like this value of, the, you know, having a safety net supporting people so that they can thrive. But I think that's something that all people should have. My philanthropy and my activism is sort of informed by a vision of what it would a world be like if we all had what we needed to thrive. Um, and I think that all people deserve that. I'll speak more later on in the podcast about my experience with an organization called Resource Generation. Um, and that has really being part of that organization has helped me be able to understand my family story and then figure out what my purpose is and my role is on that family lineage. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. I know it, it's probably taken some time for you to craft that story and figure out where you fit in it, um, but there's so many things to unpack from what you just shared with us. You talked about the fact that the times have changed so much and that you were born into this. Do you feel guilt around that? Yeah, that's a <laughs> complicated question. Yes, I, I definitely struggle with guilt and shame, but I've often, you know, learned from social justice activists and the communities I've been part of that shame and guilt are not helpful mm -hmm. or productive emotions. <laughs> and to, to acknowledge them and to recognize them. And there's when you face these inequalities and these injustices and the unfairness of our system, it come, those emotions come up. And I know I struggled with them a lot. And by the However, way, you don't have to face those things. You're choosing to. You right. It's important to face those things. And, but also to give myself grace uh, and compassion that they are difficult things to face. So I want to go back to the, the five generations piece. And I don't know, some people listening may have heard a previous episode I did with Esther Choi talking about first generation wealth. But what we learned from Esther and a lot of research that she's done and others have done is that 
it's very common that the third generation of a family can lose the fortune and the wealth. So it's very cool that your family has successfully transferred down those resources. I just wondered from you, do you know if there are specific reasons why you were able to overcome that statistic? Because I guess that would have been your grandparents, right? It would have been the third. Mm -hmm. I personally believe in a high estate tax. I believe in a wealth tax. You know, we used to have in the United States, we used to have much, much higher taxes on the wealthy. Um, And that's when we had the largest middle class in our country. I think the way our society is set up right now that people feel like, oh, I need to make sure that my kids and my grandkids are taken care of because what if something happens to them? Yeah, I hear Um, that a lot in my work. Yeah, and that's sort of based in our our culture of individuality. We are not a very collective culture in the United States. We Our healthcare costs are very high (laughs) and our housing costs are very high. And if we had a stronger safety net uh, and we had better public services, that there would be less fear and less fear of scarcity. And there would be more of an understanding that happiness um, and well-being doesn't necessarily come from wealth. It comes from community. It comes from well-being and, you know, taking care of each other. <laughs> For my family, it's a story of, you know, there's a lot of financial uh, vehicles that are set up that can help pass money down and reduce taxes and things like that. And so I think my ancestors just were, you know, were kind of knew how to to work that system and knew how to to their advantage. You know, there's a lot of ways to accumulate wealth and set up structures to make sure that continues. Yeah. Over these generations, philanthropy has been part of your family's culture. And I know when we talked before, you were telling me that conservation is a huge priority and has been over the years, but tell us about how priorities have been set and what you talk about as a family when you think about your giving. Definitely conservation, environmentalism, protecting land has been very important to my family. Um, I think that's now translated to a concern about climate change, to supporting climate justice and environmental justice work. At least in my family with my parents and my brother and I, we have been really open with each other and have had a lot of conversations as a family about values and money and, you know, the family history. And I really suggest to other families, whether you have a family foundation or whatever the structures are to set aside time to have those conversations that are, you know, spend time with your family and enjoy your time together and appreciate each other and then set aside a specific time to talk about money. Obviously it's going to, you know, come up, but those are really intense conversations and very emotional. And so it's, I know for my family, it's been helpful to set aside, like, this is the amount of time we're going to talk. This is what we're going to talk about. Kind of having some boundaries uh, around those conversations. And Um, mental preparation. Exactly. And so, you know, came home for Thanksgiving, came home for Christmas, different times, we would have have those conversations. And that's built trust over time. And it's taken time And we're still all learning and we're still all growing and figuring this stuff out. And so I think it's a lifelong journey, but I do think it's really important to have those conversations. And I think it's strengthened our relationships as a family. And we really go to each other with ideas and say, oh, I learned about this organization. Do you want to connect with them? What do you think? 
sharing. We also all do impact investing. So investing in co-ops or investing in small um, people of color owned businesses, different funds that um, are off Wall Street. That's also part of our, our strategy as a family is, is thinking about both the investing, how do we not invest in fossil fuels, not invest in private prisons, things like that, um, and shift investments as much as we can to the community. Find consensus when you're having these conversations, or can you say, thank you for your thoughts, I'm going to go ahead and do this? So we don't have a family foundation. So we do our giving more individually. And so we don't have to come to a consensus, <laughs> which probably helps for, you know, less conflict. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think we mostly are on the same page, um, which I'm extremely grateful for. And my parents have a lot of trust in my brother and I that we are connected with organizations and we know what the needs are and that we're navigating that. Well, I was just wondering if while you're listening to their thoughts that you could be, you know, respectfully veto them. It sounds like you can. Yeah, I definitely, I think I've pushed my parents um, and other family members to say, what about this? Let's, let's make sure we are funding organizations that are led by people of color and that are for people of color. And I think, you know, my parents are very embedded in their local community and they still give a lot to sort of like you know, support education, support more like services, right? And I'm always wishing them to say, okay, yes, we need to make sure people have food. We need to make sure people have shelter and education. These are all really important. But if unless we go upstream and address the root causes that are leading to homelessness, that are leaving, leading to food insecurity um, and in- inequities, these things are just going to keep happening. And so my priority with my giving is really like addressing those root causes and supporting organizing that's pushing policy change. I think local community nonprofits that are addressing, you know, the day-to-day needs are really important. So I see it as a yes and we need mutual aid. We need to make sure people have what they need, but at the same time, who are we supporting? And often philanthropy, foundations, major donors are not supporting grassroots organizing. Grassroots organizing gets so little funding. So I feel like as someone who sees the value in that, it's my responsibility to to make sure as much funding goes towards that as possible. And that is such a classic debate, you know, the root cause versus the need today. And how do you prioritize that? Yeah, I don't think it has to be either or. And I think that there is so much money. (laughs) There's so much money that is just sitting um, in foundation, sitting in the stock market that life mindset. (laughs) Yeah. What if we did both? It's easy to get stuck in perfectionism around these things of like, I have to look at their financials and I have to make sure everything's perfect. And that just perpetuates the same problems versus having trust in organizations and just sort of saying like, you know what, I'm going to relinquish a little bit of that control. And I'm just going to trust in these organizations to use uh, the resources, how they need to be used. Do you think you're unique in that mindset as someone in your generation of philanthropy, or do you think it's a personality thing? In terms of like having that trust in organizations? I think it's very much a value in social justice philanthropy specifically. uh, And it's something that I've sort of been in a lot of, you know, trainings and spaces where that's really been emphasized. And so I think current event with the political climate that we've been in the past four years with 
the police brutality and the Black Lives Matter movement that a lot of people are feeling urgency around, like, we need to address these things right away. It really does require trust, though. I mean, no matter how much you believe in it, you have to trust that where you're giving the money, they're going to use it well, wisely, however you define that. So, right. It's, you know, I, I commend that you're, that you're doing that and moving that forward. I, sometimes I say, oh, I'm giving away my money. And someone said, no, Sarah, you're giving back, you know, you're giving those, that money back. There's a a mindset around, I didn't earn this money. It's not really mine. um, If you think about it in a kind of large systemic way. And so having a different relationship with the money, I think helps to then have more trust and be able to let go of it. Um, If kind of thinking like that, this money has been accumulated through, you know, often extractive uh, industries like people, you know, why do stocks, you know, have, how do they accumulate so much and how do they grow so much oftentimes because the workers are not paid a living wage. I mean, this is, while you're talking again, I'm thinking about that first generation wealth where these donors are giving away money that they themselves earned and how different that experience is as a donor versus what you're describing. It just is really reminding me that as fundraisers, we really need to understand our donors' mindsets and the way they think about their wealth. So I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. And even people who are, say, working in tech, there's an interesting, why do people who work in tech right now earning such high salaries when the federal minimum wage is $7.25 currently? And so there's there's a lot to grapple with (laughs) within that as well. But also, yeah, there's they're just people are coming from vastly different economic perspectives and class perspectives. As fundraisers, it's super important to be sensitive to that and to be aware of that and not assume anything. Well, so let's talk about your personal giving as much as you feel comfortable sharing, sort of how you decide where you want to give. And then, you know, I'm curious, do you give to the same place every year? or Do you change it up? Would love to hear about your process. For me, what's been really helpful is having a giving plan. So that's something that um, Resource Generation, which is, as I mentioned, an organization that specifically is for young people with class and wealth privilege who are interested in supporting social justice. That was something that was emphasized uh, to me since the beginning of my involvement. You know, it's overwhelming, right? It's overwhelming to figure out how much money can you give away? Where should you give it away? you know, are you going to give stocks? Are you going to give through a donor advised fund? You know, all of these different things. What, when, where, how, why? Yeah. (laughs) Having a giving plan, which is, can look different for, you know, there's no one right way to do it, but, you know, oftentimes it's just a Google sheet. It's a spreadsheet and it's a way of tracking who do you want to give to, what do do you have particular categories, you know? So for example, for me, I've traveled abroad and I've had connections internationally. So global solidarity is very important to me. So I wanted to give not just in the U.S., but to grassroots organizations, especially in Latin America. Um, And so I give to Grassroots International, for example, um, which is located here in Boston, but gives to a lot of amazing local grassroots groups. Uh, I created different categories for myself and then kind of went through and said, like, 20% of my overall giving is going to go to Global Solidarity, Mm -hmm. for example. And then 
being able to then have that tracking system has allowed me to make multi-year commitments, which I think is really, really important. If you're able to do that as a donor is a huge support to nonprofits. I can say as a, you know, someone who is also a fundraiser, you know, every year it's like, oh my gosh, is this donor going to renew their support or not? Do so start with the total number that you're going to give that year and then divide it out in that yes. order? Okay. Yes. You know, it's been a process over the years. So sometimes it's like a couple years ago, I made a three-year commitment to this organization. So I'm just going to keep, you know, I'm going to make sure I follow through on that three-year commitment. So, but yeah, I think having the categories, having, you know, a plan and then tracking that and then deciding, you know, what, which account is that going to come from? When in the year am I going to give? I try to give 90% of my donations. I give in the first half of the year because as a fundraiser, I know how, that, <laughs> I think we awesome. all know how many donations come in like December 31st, right? And that's great. Like glad folks are doing their giving, but at the same time, it's like, we need cash flow all year, all, all year round. So yeah, and I've worked with a money coach to really like a giving coach to really, like I always had a giving plan. And then recently I was kind of like, you know what? I really want help thinking through like, what are my categories? How am I organizing this? I want someone to check in with me on my giving. And so Sarah DeLuca, she has a coaching business and she actually used to be involved in resource generation herself and now does giving coaching for other, you know, donors. Um, and so I really suggest that because I think it can be really isolating trying to figure out your giving yes. by yourself. Don't do it in isolation because then, you know, it's easier to just kind of put it off and be like, I don't want to face that. That's kind of what has helped me figure out my giving. If you had to pick one, what has been the most impactful or meaningful gift that you've given to date? Hmm. I didn't prepare you for that one. (laughs) (laughs) This is something I was actually going to bring up, but I'll talk about it now, is being part of giving circles or giving projects has been really meaningful. So I was part of a three-year-long giving circle here in the Boston area, uh, supporting youth justice organizing. So specifically organizations that work with often high school students to support them in advocating uh, within their schools, within their communities for, you know, better conditions in their school, to get the police out of the school, better public transportation costs for youth, uh, environmental justice work, all those kinds of things. And so I used to be a teacher, you know, I used to do some teaching and working with kids. So I really, that's really important to me. And so I joined this giving circle and it's about 30 people who are all donors and you make a commitment that you're going to give a certain amount each year. Um, And then we would meet before the pandemic, we meet in person (laughs) um, and have food together and gather. And then, you know, obviously since the pandemic, it, it was on Zoom, but being part of kind of speaking to the isolation of being a donor, being part of a giving circle with people who have similar values is really valuable. And I think is both from the perspective of the donor feeling connected to this kind of larger collective and then for the organization that knowing that that this kind of three-year commitment right to know that these folks are going to commit three years to funding the work is that's like the equivalent of getting a three-year you know multi-year grant from a foundation with also the added part of the political education and the donor organizing of folks who are willingly engaging and thinking and reflecting about Boston, how um, the education system in Boston is unequal, 
how racism impacts the unequal race uh, education system, why it's important to fund youth organizing, not just college prep. Yeah, for me, being part of a giving circle has been really meaningful. You shared so much about your giving, your donor perspective. Let's transition and talk about the fact that you are a professional full-time fundraiser. How did you, you know, you mentioned that you taught at one point, but how did you make that career choice for yourself? I actually would left, I lived in Boston for a little while. I left and I came back to do a year of AmeriCorps uh, service about six years ago. And I was, you know, if you've done AmeriCorps, you know, AmeriCorps, you live on a very small living stipend um, and other folks in my program were uh, applying for food stamps, things like that. And I was able to get financial support from my family. So that was a huge wake up call for me of like, I really need to look at this and reflect on this and think about my own economic class privilege. And I didn't have any space to kind of process that and learn about that. And so that's when I found Resource Generation and there's a chapter in the Boston area. Um, And so the Resource Generation organizes young people, 18 to 35, with access to wealth, that have class privilege, uh, towards the equitable redistribution of land, wealth, and power. So it's very much an intentional space that's such a powerful people. line, the equity yes. distribution. Wow. Yes. So it's very political. <laughs> um, it's not just learn about giving or talk about philanthropy. It's very much with the intention of uh, economic wealth inequality is unfair, unjust. We need to, we need to address it. And so I found that community and it really resonated with me. Um, about six and- years ago? About six years ago. Yeah. I think it's interesting just even within the past six years, resource generation has shifted a lot um, and become, you know, there's, you can see they were in the New York times, much more outward facing um, with the Trump presidency and the pandemic, the number of people involved has increased so much because it kind of, I think, yeah, it was a wake up call to a lot of people. So to use what they have to make change. Right. And like that you, you know, this is no longer, you know, you can clearly see inequality playing out on the national in a national way. And, and um, that, it, yeah, it's, it's not enough to just sit by and watch. And so decided I wanted to do some kind of resource mobilization work as my, my full-time job. And I became connected with United for a Fair Economy, which is where I work today. And so now Yes, as you said, I'm wearing both the hats of a, of a donor and a fundraiser. So tell us about your role at United, Fair, United for a Fair Economy. So I'll tell you a little bit about United for a Fair Economy first. So United for a Fair Economy, UFE, as we call it, has been around for over 25 years and has been a national economic justice organization really raising awareness about wealth inequality since the 90s, you know, before Occupy Wall Street, before Bernie Sanders, before it became, you know, the wealth tax, before these things became really well known, and using a approach called popular education, which is grounded in Latin America, in movements in Latin America, really like how do you use education as a tool for social change, and really encouraging folks to share their personal stories and experiences Um, It is a way to understand kind of how different systems of oppression are impacting their daily lives. 
Um, and it's really fun too. It's really participatory. So we did this activity called the 10 chairs. And it's like, if you have 10 chairs, that's all the wealth in the United States, right? And what does it look like if everyone sits, one person sits on each chair, it's equal to, equally distributed. Mm -hmm. However, the top 1% holds 40% of the wealth in the United States. And so one person gets four chairs and everyone else has to sit just sort Those of like- visuals are so powerful. Yeah. I know one time I did an exercise where the group asked questions, you know, did your parents go to college? Has someone- made a racial slur to your face, you know, do you have debt and people step forward and backward. And it was just staggering seeing that visual representation of privilege. Exactly. That's, I think a lot of people have learned a lot from our workshops um, and our trainings, but our program has now really expanded to be about movement support in general. And so we also support organizers with healing justice work. So really thinking about the importance of bringing in the trauma and people's personal experiences and how hard organizing work is um, to sustain. And so just taking the time doing circle work, um, which is really about the emotional side of social justice work. And then we also have a program called the Responsible Wealth Project, which is organizing wealthy. It's similar to resource generation, but it's really focused on organizing wealthy people who believe in tax justice. And so having wealthy folks speak out in favor of taxi more, I want there to be a strong public infrastructure in our country. I want there to be good public education. I want there to be good public transportation for there to be, you know, good healthcare system, all of these things. And that, you know, you can do give away a lot of money and we're still going to have systemic issues. We need a system that actively makes sure there's more equality in our economy. And so on both a, a state level and a national level, we've uh, organized people to write letters to representatives, do op-eds, go and lobby in Washington. I was really inspired about UFE because of the education component, but also because of this donor organizing model of saying, mm -hmm. yes, we want people to give away their money and to support financially, but also what does it mean for donors to also be activists and to leverage their privilege and connections and networks to say, you know, how unusual is it to hear a wealthy person say, tax me more. Abigail Disney, for example, is a member of Responsible Wealth, and she speaks out a lot of saying, you know, my family, the Disney family uh, has benefited from low tax rates, all these things. I believe in that we need to increase taxes on the wealthy. Hearing someone like Abigail Disney say that has an impact. So, anyways, that's a little bit about. It sounds her so work. dynamic. I doubt any two days are the same. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So, my work is specifically around, you know, and some of it's just the kind of day to day work of fundraising, of like writing appeal letters, writing, you know, grant proposals, meeting with donors. But at the same time, there's also for me, yeah, it's really exciting when we have like a letter that we're trying to get folks to support for responsible wealth, or I get to go to a training um, and get to participate or help facilitate. So I wear a lot of different hats within the organization. Do you think that having your donor experience enriches your fundraising experience? 
So I think it goes both ways. I think, you know, being a donor makes me a better fundraiser. I think being a fundraiser makes me a better donor. But I think in the end, anyone can be an amazing fundraiser. You don't have to be a donor to be an amazing fundraiser. It's really about relationship building. It's organizing, right? It's having that ability to kind of move people along a journey. Also, anyone can be a donor, right? Like you can be a five- $5 a month monthly donor, and that has a huge impact on an organization. You can be a volunteer. You know, I definitely have a unique perspective as someone who is a donor. Um, I can really empathize with folks who are trying to find their role in social justice work and in in movement work as someone with inherited money or who has more resources than they need. (laughs) And then I think just like, I really appreciate when I receive a really genuine, you know, appreciation or thank you or feel invited into an organization um, that is really, uh, you know, to not to break down the power dynamics between donor and fundraiser, donor and organization, um, and to see that we have similar values, we have similar um, visions for the world. And so being invited in. Even with all of your giving and your sophistication around giving, it still gives you pause when you are welcomed in, in a well done way, like you still notice that that still matters to you? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's amazing yeah. to hear. Like that, that, that will not get old for donors. Right. I think feeling genuinely part of something um, in, in a way that is authentic. I think oftentimes there's some, a lot of performative <laughs> things that can happen within fundraising of sort of like putting donors up on pedestals or, you know, donors kind of expecting a lot from organizations that's completely unrealistic. So I think when we can just kind of like be human with each other and just see each other as people, yeah, and not expecting organizations to bend over backwards for me, uh, I don't want that, you know. Um, I think it depends. Every donor has different preferences, but I think we as donors need to think critically about the time that we take for organizations. And there's a reasonable amount of time and then there's an unreasonable amount of time. (laughs) And like the most important thing is the work getting done. Thank you so much for everything you shared. This was such a dynamic conversation. I feel like I used that word multiple times, but for good reason. And I would love to end this conversation with my signature question, which is Sarah, what do you know for sure? Thanks for this conversation as well. I really, really enjoyed it. I could say a lot of different things, but the one I'm going to emphasize is uh, movement, social movements are essential for social change. And if you look back in the history of the United States, if you think about the civil rights movement, movements for gay rights, Black Lives Matter movements, especially in the past year after the murder of George Floyd, these movements have created significant social change and impact and really completely shifted policy, completely shifted culture in our country in a really systemic way. You know, there's research showing that foundations are less likely to fund organizations that are led by people of color, especially women of color. Our organization is led by an incredible leader, Jeanette Hueso, who's an immigrant from El Salvador. And she's expressed, you know, the frustrations of being a woman of color leading a nonprofit and all the challenges that come with that. Well, Sarah, I think you gave me about three different sets of goosebumps on that answer. So thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Catherine. This is a great conversation. Bye. I want to thank Jen Risher for making this episode possible. Jen is a former guest who introduced me to Sarah thinking she would be a terrific storyteller. Well, Jen was right. 
And if you, listeners, have guests in mind for the podcast, please reach out to me with your recommendations. You can connect on LinkedIn or via Instagram at devdebrief. And if you take anything away from Sarah's story, remember, assuming anything is a mistake. Thank you for joining us today.